to be a yogi. I'm Edward Reeb. This is episode 10, Shivananda Yoga, in which I interview Shikar Bardwaj. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the To Be a Yogi podcast. Hi, Edward. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Very well. So let's see, you're in Delhi? Yes, I'm in Delhi. And you're a yoga instructor? Yes, right. I'm a teacher. A very new one, though, but yes. As am I. I've only been teaching since uh, April of 2014. Wow. I mean, I did my course, uh, my TTC course, during that time only, from Shivananda Ashram Kerala. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was in uh, March 2014. Oh, so we've both been uh, yoga instructors for the same amount of time. Right, correct. You've got the accent, though, so you seem more authentic. <laughs> I'm still working on mine. It's it's hard for people to take me seriously when I get up there looking like I do, talking Sanskrit. <laughs> but people seem to be used to that around here. I don't know. They must be. But were you into yoga before? I practiced uh, yoga. I kind of pulled myself out of a slump. I, um, when I, you know how people, their metabolism in their early twenties, they can eat garbage and do nothing and everything's fine. Uh, well, I got, I got to be about 32 and it really started to catch up with me and my sedentary lifestyle. I would, I would drive to work and sit at a desk all day and come home and then sit on a couch, you know, and then, uh, so I was starting to get heavier and my back was hurting and, I both my my folks died when they were relatively young so I started to see myself kind of declining into an early grave and that motivated me to um you know start start to take on a a serious yoga practice um which okay. I I I worked that into my uh my life by doing it during my lunch breaks in the fire escape at work and uh after a couple years of that I I got to where I felt pretty confident in my practice and I, I didn't have the back pain anymore and I had lost a lot of weight, I decided to just change careers. And so I, I quit my old office job and now I'm a yoga instructor. Wow, that's great. So you're doing it full time now? I am, though I Uber drive a bit just to make up the difference. <laughs> okay, okay, right. How about you? So for, for me, it's like almost like same. I mean, I was also into this corporate job. There's this uh, software company called R Systems. Mm-hmm. So I was working in that company in their business development department. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I quit that job in 2007 to start something of my own, which was real estate. Mm. I wanted time for myself and that's why I decided to do this real estate business. Mm-hmm. And I was doing it very well uh, till 2012, 2013. And then there was this big slump in the market. Mm. And uh, some personal problems also. And I decided to go to this ashram in uh, 2014. And that was a life-changing moment for me. Mm, Very nice. Yeah, I mean, I decided that I have to do this. I have to be a teacher. And it's really funny. You know, when I came back, I was still not sure that I'm going to do it full-time. But what happened that I started teaching free of cost in a park near my home. Mm -hmm. And I started with five people. And then slowly, slowly, you know, for those five people, they became 10 and 20 and 100. Hmm. And it was all donation based. So that really motivated me. Wow. I was like, oh, fine, you know, it's something which I meant for and people like me, I mean, as a teacher. Yeah. 
So then I started full time and now I teach in Delhi also. I mean, in, in a very famous studio in Delhi, which is called Om Yoga Shala. Okay. So I teach in that studio. There are two studios where I teach. And I'm planning to have my own studio also very, I mean, not very soon, but maybe in, you know, a couple of years time. I've taken a place, but it's still very raw. I have to, I don't have, you know, that much uh, uh, like liquidity of, uh, of funds. Mm-hmm. So I'll just waiting on the, for some money and then maybe I'll build something on that place and let's see. Oh, that sounds great. One of the things I want to do is to have a nice place to teach yoga indoors and then a nice place to teach yoga outdoors when the weather permits, uh, like, you know, mm-hmm. like a nice place patio that's large enough to accommodate maybe five people right that's always very good yes open area yeah yoga so do you still do the the teaching in the park yes that i still do oh good and that is actually i mean believe it or not i mean there's something which is totally free of cost is my biggest revenue generator also so that's so funny i mean i don't charge anything there people can come and it's like a donation based thing so they can just give me you know something in the envelope yeah. Uh, for the month. So it's like that, yeah. Very interesting. Right now I'm looking out my window at um, the planetarium up above, up at Griffith Observatory. And down in Griffith Park, just down the hill from there, they do a lot of free yoga um, in the under the trees and the grass and people doing Tai Chi and things like that over there. It's very good. Yeah, yes. Something like that, yes. So here also, there's the same thing which I've been doing, so... Very yeah. nice. Well, I'll have to visit you when I uh, when I visit India. I'll definitely come through Delhi. You must, yes. Most welcome. Now, there's New Delhi and Old Delhi. I mean, yeah, it's like same only. I mean, uh, it's like, you know, I mean, Delhi is very small. So if you combine Old Delhi, New Delhi, it's like, I mean, it's same only. Not that much difference. Okay, so it's basically the older part and then the newer, more recently developed part. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Right. The- like all the new things are in New Delhi only. Old Delhi is, you know, I mean, it's like very congested roads and everything is now in New Delhi. All the embassies, all this stuff, everything is in New Delhi now. So I see. Is Old Delhi, is that like a, sort of a museum piece? Is, is Are there old ruins? Or, I mean, how, I, I don't know what I'm <laughs> visualizing. It's a proper functioning place. People live there, like nicely populated. Uh-huh. And uh, it's just that, yeah, all the buildings, they are very, very, you know, old buildings there and old uh, colonies. I don't know what you call colonies there. I mean, we call them colonies like the uh, the uh, residential areas. Mm-hmm. So they're like very o- old, uh, like 200 years, 300 years ago, you know, yeah. I mean, built and they're still in use. So Very nice. Yeah, we don't have anything that old here in Los Angeles. My house is uh, 106 years old, which is makes it one of the oldest things in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from old Spanish missions and and pueblos and things. But that's really old, actually. 100. That's your that's your ancestral home. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's nice. Okay. Yeah, they came. They came early. Just for my own education and for the people listening, sure. do, does your name have a meaning? Yes, the Shikhar is a Sanskrit name and it means uh, uh, mountain peak, so top of mountain. Very nice. And your last name? It's Bharadwaj. And uh, so all the surnames, all the last names here, I mean, they are derived from some rishis. And so Bharadwaj was also Rishi, maybe, you know, thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's how it goes. Oh, okay. So they might have had a meaning thousands of years ago, but at this point, they're just surnames? Yes. I understand. 
Okay. Sorry, I don't, I don't know why my last name is Reeb or what that means. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, most of the English name, I don't know whether they keep the I mean name because of some meaning or they just keep the name like that. Or, I mean, do you have any, like, Edward, does it mean anything or is it just like Edward? So. Oh, Edward? Edward means it's an old uh, Germanic or old Teutonic word, uh, name, which means rich guardian. So Ed is rich or blessed, and Ward is like a ward in prison, you know, W-A-R-D, the, the guard. Uh, right. Also, guard, the word guard, G-U-A-R-D, is cognate with ward, and uh, that's the same ward that's in my name, Edward. Okay, okay, it's like that. Yeah. Interesting, okay. Yeah, but most people don't know the meanings of their names. Yes, yeah, I can't imagine that, you know, Peter has any meaning or Jack has any meaning. It's just that, you know. Peter means the rock. When Jesus said, you will be known as Peter the rock or Kephas the rock upon which I will build my church. And that's uh, the bones of Peter are underneath the Vatican. So it actually has a very significant meaning. Oh, okay. Yeah, isn't know. that weird? <laughs> yeah, I've got no clue. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I have to you know, educate myself before I make you know, any comment like that. So. Oh, no, no. It's uh, most, like I said, most people don't know that. I, I have a little bit of, you know, religious education, but, uh, and I'm, I'm interested in name origins. But yeah, Jennifer is an old uh, uh, Celtic name meaning white wave. It was originally Guinevere, who might sound familiar as the wife of King Arthur. Um, mm -hmm. It's fun. I don't know. I find it fun to know the, the layers. It's like looking at um, sedimentary layers in the side of a rock and seeing, you know, the fossils from from before, you know, to says there's okay. there's a story behind even just regular words like the word. Uh, well, you, uh, there, there's in uh, Indo-European. That's an interesting tie in. So so you guys say, how do you say 100? Uh, Shatuk. Shatuk. In uh, romantic languages, in, in languages that come from Latin, Latin, it used to be mm -hmm. kentum. So, but those, those all, they go back to the, uh, the people in the steppes, the Indo-Europeans who first developed uh, domestication of horses and, and, uh, and first started, um, you know, using dairy. There was a point where there were no humans that could ingest dairy. And it was our our mutual common ancestors from the steppes that and that the bacteria in their in their digestive system initially developed the ability to break down lactose, and so suddenly they didn't have to eat their cows; they could milk their cows. And uh, and mean, meanwhile, they were speaking a language that was a common ancestor to yours and my language. Uh, that you know, some some migrated westward, and that became. Kentum and others migrated eastward and it became Satem. And then uh, from, from that came the word like uh, century, which is uh, 100 years. And right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, 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 I do love words. That's really interesting. Yeah, a lot of, lot of words, I think they have some common, uh, uh, I mean, origin. I yeah. Mean, I will, like, especially Sanskrit. I mean, in many languages, in Persian language especially, uh, because my ex was a Persian, mm -hmm. and uh, so so many common things between the Sanskrit and Persian, old Persian language, and it's really interesting to you know. I mean, just imagine that how, I mean, how much you know, one civilization was you know spread across whole Indo-European. I mean, this whole uh, area. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Now, uh, old Persian, I imagine, is that related to modern Farsi? 
Yes, yes. So there's so there's common there's words that sound similar yes. in Sanskrit and Farsi. Still, yes, wow. there are some common words. Yes, still. In and Farsi. you even have like raja and royal, meaning the same thing. They sound very very similar. Yes, yes, they do. The ya and the ja are often kind of transposed, even in romantic languages. So, uh, a J sound will be an H in one country and a Y in another country and a J in another country, but it'll all have the same word. Right, yes. Let's see. I guess you already told... Uh, you mentioned your teacher. I, I, you mentioned it real quickly at the beginning. In the beginning, so what I mentioned that, yes, so I became a teacher. Uh, I mean, it was like, you know, a very accidental. I just went to this ashram. Mm-hmm. And Shivananda Ashram in Kerala, which is very famous. We went there. I mean, I went there and uh, this was a one month course, 100 hours, 200 hours TTC course, which I did. Mm-hmm. No intention of becoming a teacher. And uh, my teachers, they are, they are followers of, I mean, they are, I mean, they are disciples of uh, this uh, Vishnu Devananda. So Vishnu Devananda was the disciple of Shivananda. So that's how the uh, name Shivananda Ashram. So they have the maximum number of uh, TTC graduates in the world. And it's wow. actually, Edward, it's amazing that, you know, because I have done one more more course after my TTC from Shivananda, mm-hmm. uh, one in Vinyasa flow. Uh, one thing which I have to, you know, say that this Shivananda ashram, you go there for one month, it's a residential program, and they cover almost all the thing, all the aspects of yoga. They kind of, they have made this beautiful program where they have put everything, like they have put physical asanas, they have put nice meditation and pranayamas and yoga sutras and Vedanta philosophy and everything is there in one month time. So it's really amazing that how much knowledge they give in just one month's time. Maybe over the years they have perfected it and uh, the kind of which you get there in one month, it's amazing. And you can imagine someone like me, so I'm like a very... Rajasic guy, if you know what Raj means, like a very active, energetic, and I've got no inclination. I had no inclination to become a yoga teacher or to be in yoga. Actually, mm-hmm. it's very funny. Uh, one of the reasons I went into yoga uh, was because of, you know, girls. So I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. so many beautiful girls practicing yoga. So, you know, why not? You know, let's go into yoga class for a girl. And Believe you me, I mean, once I started uh, going into yoga class, I mean, girls became secondary and primary focus was in yoga. Yeah. And so they say that, you know, I mean, you do even a even a good thing with bad intention. Right. And slowly, slowly, your intentions also, they become good. So because mm. my intentions were not very good, <laughs> intention was to get a girl. <laughs> so thing was so good. The activity was so good that, you know, uh, yeah, so here I'm now a teacher, and uh, the whole my whole life has changed after becoming a teacher. So uh, uh, when I started this free class, free yoga classes in park, so one of the things at that time also I was not very sure that whether I want to be a teacher or not. But when some students they started coming up to me and they said, "Sir, you're making so much difference in our life," and I was like, "What did I do? I just taught them yoga, some asanas, some pranayam." Yeah. Why do they do that to me? It was really amazing. And they were actually walking up to me, messaging me sometimes that, sir, you are such a positive person. You have made such positive changes in our life. And I couldn't figure out what's happening. And then I decided, OK, fine, if it's making so much change, the yoga, then let me be a teacher. And uh, that's how the journey began. Very nice. Yeah, I was thinking about that 
connection because I can kind of relate with what you were saying. I think that part of it is that when we're not doing yoga, the energy in the body kind of tends to gravitate toward the lower chakras. But with the breath work and with the moving the extremities of the body with the, you know, the focus on being in present time and, and all of the things going on within the body, we discover that there's so much more to that life force energy than just those lower chakras. Not that there's anything wrong with those lower chakras, but when, when all of the, well, I, I say chakras, chakras, uh, when, when all of them are, are flowing together, when you have the, the third eye open, you have the crown open, you have the heart open, you have, you know, the solar plexus open, the, the lower chakras kind of fall into place. They just sort of go, oh, oh, okay, I guess, I guess those, those higher chakras are in charge. But uh. It's true. It makes sense. You know, uh, I did my ATTC, Advanced Teacher's Training, Vinyasa Krama, mm-hmm. with a very nice teacher, uh, Ramaswamiji. And uh, this was in this January only. I mean, just uh, uh, this uh, this January. I mean, one month ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I had this breakthrough moment. So with me, I'm very good in asanas. So you know, especially the strong asanas in my classes, I made sure that all my students they practice like like, like a nice strong class, strong asana class. Mm-hmm. For me, when I did this vinyasa krama uh, course, for me the amazing thing was uh, the uh, pranayama effect. And we were focusing on pranayamas. And for me, uh, there was one day when we sat for one hour uh, pranayama class, in pranayama class, and I didn't realize that how time passed. And once I came out of that uh, whole pranayama uh, class, I, I could feel my legs, they were numb because there was no blood circulation. I was sitting in a cross-leg posture. Hmm. And whole one hour I could sit comfortably. I didn't even realize. After one hour I realized that my legs are numb once I came out of pranayama. And I was like, wow, you know how, how intense it can be. And that was first time. So I've been teacher for like, like two years. Mm-hmm. But this came to me uh, just now, uh, two months ago. Wow. So as they say that, you know, you have to practice a lot. It just doesn't come naturally to you. Yeah. I mean, immediately to you. It comes naturally. It takes time. And over the years I've been practicing asanas, reading I mean, practicing, but for the first time in two years, that effect came that I could sit in pranayama without thinking of anything for one hour. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> we, we were talking earlier, just because just because we already brought it up. Um, there's the the five yamas and the five niyamas, the fourth yama mm-hmm. being Brahmacharya. And I know yes. I know that um, some people in their path and in you know in an ashram kind of lifestyle where you're you know separating from the world then that that's taken to an extreme of being absolutely celibate and having no connect you know not entertaining those kinds of thoughts or anything like that but then there's the householder who who's married and has children how would you say that brahmacharya could become you know, could be practically thought of or thought of by one who is a householder or maybe one who is single and open to the idea of becoming a householder or, be, or getting married and having a life like that. Where does Brahmacharya fit in? And, and I'm asking because this is something that kept my mother from pursuing yoga was she, she started to hear about Brahmacharya and she said, you know what, this path's not for me. And so I, and she died young because she didn't, do yoga you know she didn't get she didn't start down that path so i have kind of a vested interest in wanting to 
interpret that on behalf of people in the audience who might be on the fence about taking getting serious about yoga okay so first of all it's not brahmacharya it's brahmacharya oh thank you uh, yeah and uh, yeah i mean see uh, okay so brahmacharya is exactly not celibate being celibate literally like literally doesn't translate in being celibate so you for many people like many many great indian yoga teachers they have been married with kids with a proper life like proper teachers like krishnamacharya like uh, he's like a modern uh, yoga guru i mean who has given yoga to so many people mm-hmm. and uh, shri ayangar ayangar also everyone knows he was married he had kids so brahmacharya i asked my teacher and he told me that brahmacharya doesn't mean being celibate it means that you're happy with the one person if you, even if you're happy with one person it's the, all about the focus where is your focus is your focus only on your um, sexual things if you're totally focused your whole energy is there only then you're not following brahmacharya but if you're just enjoying it as a part of your a normal lifestyle where your focus is something else you you have a higher purpose you're focusing on each and every other th- aspects of life you're focusing towards mental peace you're focusing towards uh, Uh, towards a state where there is nothing happening in your mind like uh, nirvana and as long as you're practicing you're having a uh, nice normal uh, house life or one partner or maybe two i mean it doesn't matter he doesn't you know tell us how many partners it's just that it should not be a hindrance to your uh, yeah. uh, your your, <clears throat> your main you can, focus yeah focus yes if you if not many people i think can stay focused uh, but if you can if you have the capacity then i don't think so it's a problem in fact it's a very interesting question which you asked me because i mean i have my own take on it which has which is not from a teacher mm-hmm. for me you know i mean i believe one thing advert that you know that yogis were actually you know like present days hippie i mean you can compare them with a hippie mm-hmm. uh, the ancient yogis for me and if you see all the pranayama techniques and some asanas like headstand and sarvangasana where you know a lot of blood rushes into your head and when you actually practice uh, all these asanas some asanas and some uh, uh, like some pranayama techniques breathing techniques this give you some high also and that high is i mean it's like a you know it's like you can relate it to drugs or alcohol effect also mm-hmm. i was doing some study also it's very interesting that something like kapalbhati it's more like hyperventilation of your you know it's like a process called hyperventilation mm-hmm. so it's so much close to this process kapalbhati and it's supposed to give you some high some people do hyperventilation to get that high and uh, so maybe you know they developed all these techniques without medication to reach that high and because they had that healthy body and their focus was right and they were doing it naturally so it's more like you know towards the state of samadhi so that's my take on it so it's like you know they were like i mean ancient hippies you can say and uh, and one very interesting thing so in uh, ancient days what used to happen like many many childless couples many childless couples they used to go to these rishis for the blessing that you know they're not having child can you help us like it's been like documented mm-hmm. in our uh, mythological texts and they used to bless them with kids i don't know how so my take is on you know on this that you know maybe they were you know i mean doing it with them with the with the uh, wife mm-hmm. so how else can they you know bless a child and uh, so it's like you know uh, because their focus was not uh, on the sexual act as per 
but their focus was something else uh, just you know reaching for that mental state yeah and so i think sex doesn't uh, became a hindrance so it, it's not a hindrance so you can actually practice uh, uh, yoga become a proper yoga teacher very good one and achieve that state of nirvana also at some some stage maybe and uh, that doesn't stop you that doesn't hamper your uh, your path so that's my take on it. Well, thank you very much. Um, now that you've shared that, I'm, I, I, I have two follow-up questions. Um, what, one, what is your take on Santosha? Okay. So my take on Santosha is that uh, for Santosha, I have to look at my father. So, you know, I mean, there are some people who even after becoming a yogi, who give up everything, they still not reach santosha. They still not get santosha. Santosha means satisfaction. Like, you know, ultimate, okay, fine. Right. You're talking about that santosha, right? Right. Satisfaction. Okay. So uh, many people, even after giving up everything, and they think that they practice brahmacharya because they practice it in a wrong way. They don't have sex. They don't get married. They don't have wife. And they still are not happy. They still are not, are not, uh, they still are not santosh. They still don't have santosha in their lives. And what happens to them? That because they're following a wrong wrong path. Now my father, my mother is a is like a very rajasic person. My mother is you know like one of that typical lady who's like very fierce and uh, always you know uh, she she gets things done. Yeah. And sometimes you know I mean it, she can be very aggressive also. But my father you know because of his calm nature he could actually manage everything. And my I mean they are very amazing couple you know together they have done so well for themselves. And my father. With all these situations, he's he's been married, he has kids, and I see him and I see that amazing glow on his face. You know, he's such a Santoshi guy because I don't understand how he gets it. Because, you know, it's not that, you know, his kids are doing very well. I mean, I'm a yoga teacher, I'm okay, nothing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, good, but uh, nothing like great, nothing exceptional. But Right, he's not drawing it from something it's... external. Yes, correct, exactly. You got it right. That's a very nice way to put it. He's actually drawing it from inside. Maybe he believes in a system that he's if he's doing right things, only right things are going to happen to him. That's what he believes in. Yeah. And even having led a normal, like a very, very, very uh, hectic life, he's still very santosh even after, you know. I mean, he has had, his, he must have had his fun also in as a youngster. He used, he smoked also for a while. He drank a little bit, you know, in his life. Mm-hmm. And that to coming from a vegetarian coming from a family uh, where you know i mean all these things are prohibited right so he he had his own share of you know fun in his life still i can call him a proper yogi because i can see that santosh in his face on his you know whole charisma yeah and it might not be there if he had uh, remained repressed and not allowed himself to have those experiences totally right yes very interesting yeah, and I feel something that, similar that, about my family uh, with the, you know, sort of a, the people that would hold back in the name of being Christian, you know, and, and uh, it was the, this and that was forbidden. But my parents went and did the forbidden things. And then so I, I, I can kind of relate with that. Definitely. Yes. I mean, actually, in, in Buddhism also, like Buddha was an amazing saint. But, you know, all his followers later on. Uh, when they were practicing Buddhism, I mean, all the hubs, I mean, uh, all the Buddhist uh, uh, centers, they became hub of absolutely debauched lifestyle. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, 
you know, you, you can't suppress. I mean, everyone ca- cannot be a Buddha, you know. Yeah. I mean, Buddha became Buddha because he was a, he belonged to a royal family. He had experienced each and everything in his life and then he gave up. Right. But when you, when you, when you straight away want to become a Buddha, you can't ignore your, you know, I mean, your, your, in your genetic engineering. How can you ignore that? I mean, your, your body wants to procreate, you know, you have to have to follow certain things. Your body will tell you to. Yeah. So, yeah. And then I guess uh, my last question would be about tapas. Okay, so uh, tapas. So tapas is something which, personally, uh, mm, I'm not very uh, good at <laughs> because uh, for tapas, because I've uh, you have to have a little bit of sattvic nature to be uh, to have that tapas. You know, you have to have that dedication. Yeah, and that dedication. And that focus that comes after I think a lot of practice. So uh, I mean I have never I've not come across many people who can you know I, who I can say that you know okay these people have done some tapas and you know yeah because it's need a lot of focus and people like me uh, so much energy going here and there. I mean for me it's a very very long step to actually channelize that energy and be able to do the tapas. So this is not the topic where I can contribute too okay. much, but. Because yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I guess my only thought on it would be, like you said, it's hard to develop that inner self-discipline. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that you know when people go to those hot yoga classes, you know, or whatever, um, or or different, you know, yoga classes where there's a teacher there that's kind of strict and saying, "Hold it, keep holding it, keep holding it," and then you're standing there sweating and you don't want to let the teacher down. That that's kind of like a shortcut into tapas. But yeah, yes. but to really get there is when you're holding the pose and you're sweating and you want to let go and you're not letting go, but you're alone. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, you are it right. If you can actually do that, and that's a very, I mean, that comes to, I mean, a very interesting thing about uh, this aspect also. So me, I'm a very, very hard practitioner of yoga. So when I go to a class, even if it's a one and a half hour class, two hour class, I keep on practicing. I never give up, no matter how hard the class is. But when I practice myself yoga in the morning, when I do self-practice, believe you me, I can't practice it for more than half an hour hmm. on my own. Yeah. So I finish up everything in half an hour. So, so yeah, you're right. You know, if I can actually reach that stage where, you know, I can actually do that without a teacher monitoring or without some external force, right. motivating force. Yeah, that's what we are aiming for. Correct. One thing that that helps me with that is if I, uh, you know, if I put on the same music, because I'll have like music that I play partly because I teach in a gym, so you can hear the people on the on the fake bicycles outside, and and they've got like you know music playing outside. So I have to put on very loud Tibetan bells to <laughs> to kind of counteract that. But. Uh, <laughs> So I'll put on my music at home and say, okay, I'm going to do this as if I were my own student. And then I spend the entire class kind of in my, in my teacher voice, in my, in my own head, as if I were practicing teaching, but following the voice as if I were the dedicated student. And so that, oh. that's where I can kind of t- key into it. And the only other thing that helps is, you know, saying... I'm going to hold this pose for X number of breaths and not budging on that, not, not cutting, de- cutting down the number of breaths and not 
speeding up the breaths because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes i'll start to kind of speed up the breaths to make it quicker but you know to to make sure they're long slow deep breaths and make sure that there's eight of them or five of them or whatever i've chosen beforehand so i mean that, that's that's what helps me but i'm the same way if i just say without thinking i'm i'm just going to do some yoga i'll do some sun salutations and i'll be like okay i feel good now <laughs> and then i'll just go yes. go about my day <laughs> That's what happens to me. But yes, what you're talking about, breath, that helps me now. So after my uh, this January course, what I've been doing, I apply the bandhas now. So oh, in between all the postures, mm -hmm. after exhalation, I apply the bandhas. So it's for me, it's like number of bandhas. Okay, fine. I'll stay in this posture and apply maybe three bandhas after every exhalation, three times. So that's how I kind of, I'm trying to, you know, yeah. uh, self-practice, but I don't know. I mean, that's good. I like that one too. For me, uh, one again, one amazing thing is Mula Bandha. So, yeah. uh, whole two years of practice, practicing yoga, because we apply bandhas also. And uh, I was, you know, I used to see all these yogis, you know, they fly into plank. I mean, they kind of fly into uh, handstand. You know, it's so effortless when they go into all these postures. Then from Utkatasana, I mean, they just jump back into plank, for example. Yeah. So they kind of, you know, it looks like as if they're flying. So, you know, for me, it was like very, I mean, I couldn't, I didn't know how they do that. I'm a strong person still, I, I couldn't do that. But now over the years, over the last two years, after applying Mulbanda, practicing Mulbanda regularly, I've seen one thing that first of all, uh, sexually, I have become very, very strong, much stronger than maybe I was, say, 10 years ago. Hmm. And secondly... All these inverted body postures and very tough postures, which were so difficult for me at one time, they have become much, much effortless for me. So one thing, one tip which I give to everyone, even non-yogis, that, you know, uh, practice Mulbandha. So that's one tip from my side, you know, just practice even yogis, non-yogis, they should practice Mulbandha. Um, um, I mean, regularly. So just to translate for people who aren't as well studied as you and I are, that is where basically you're flexing your perineum, which is mm -hmm. the kind of muscle. It's in a very kind of personal part of the body um, between the anus and, and, and the genitalia. Um, Correct. And if you're female, it basically means it's like when you're, when you're going number one, when you're peeing, and then you stop in the middle, those muscles that you're using to stop. For men, it's different, not the same. For men, uh, you have to kind of figure out where it is. You know, it, it's just right in there. If you're sitting upright in a, in a lotus position or even any kind of seated posture, it's right at the base there. It's uh, in front of the base of the spine, and you, you kind of get into, you start to you start to feel like, oh, I am a distant cousin of a snake. You know, when you when you get it right, you know, you, you start to kind of understand what they're talking about a little bit better with Kundalini rising and, and why the spine is important. It's it's kind of like if the brain is on one end of the of the central nervous system or spine, uh, Mula Banda is where you're you're bringing yourself into the other end, the other extreme of that, and you tend to get a little bit taller. And I like to focus on my third eye. Uh, so I'm kind of like with my eyes closed, looking up toward my brow while I'm working with Mula Banda. And then, of course, you bring in the other Bandas. And Banda means lock. Um, yeah, energy lock, I believe, is what it comes translates as. Yes. And there's the one in the where you bring the, the belly in and up. And that's, what's yes. that one called? Ordian Banda. Ordian? 
Odian. Odian banda. And then there's the uh, the throat where you kind of bring your your chin in and to the... up and you and what that what's that one called? It's Jalandar banda. So the it starts with the mula banda at the base, and then the the other ones you can work your way up. You can work with these in Warrior Two, uh, in a lot of postures, really. A lot of postures, yes. And when we apply all the three bandas together, it's Mahabanda. And uh, one more thing that uh, for beginners, uh, if you are very, if it's sometimes it's okay of all the three bandas, mula banda identifying that banda is really the toughest. It's it's a challenge for many people. So. What I do for beginners, I just tell them that just draw your rectum in. Mm. So as if you're just drawing your rectum oh, in, yeah. pull your rectum in. So that that's a very easy command. So kind of clench and, the glutes a little. Right, correct. Yeah. So that's that works. You slowly, slowly. You can identify that muscle. It takes time, but once you start with this uh, drawing your rectum in, then slowly, slowly, you'll be able to identify that uh, that particular muscle. And Odian band, of course, you know, I mean, just you know, your stomach in. And Jalandar band chin to the chest. So that's the, yeah. And then the only thing that I would add to that is um, just from personal experience that that it's not necessary to take, to to put as much energy as possible into flexing these muscles. You can kind of just put half, half of it mm. and just kind of Oof. gently flex them rather than forcing them, you know, like, like you're flexing your muscles in your arm or something like you're lifting something heavy it's it you can build up to that but um you don't need to go straight to it that's a very good point because sometimes uh, some like very enthusiastic people they suddenly they just want to you know um, become a perfect in this thing and uh, that's a good point so i always suggest them that you know take it easy just yeah. easy patience with you know and and you're being patient with your own body i always like to emphasize because here in the in hollywood we have a lot of people who you know uh especially at a gym like crunch where they're focused on their physical appearance they're basically there because they are going to go to an audition the next day and they want to be more attractive than the person next to them to get the role to come from that focus to come to the to the other extreme of real yoga um, you know, it's sometimes the, the between 30 people in a classroom, you'll get a whole spectrum of people who are there for the, the deepness of the yoga on one hand and then the people on the other end who just want to get the workout. We know what happens with me, Edward. So many people actually, many uh, beginners, they will come to yoga class for a nice uh, you know, workout only. It's a workout for them. And I always tell them I never make them practice pranayama if they don't want to. I tell them, okay, fine, you want to work out, I'll give you a nice workout yogic workout and slowly slowly see all these you know inner things they start developing you know automatically organically as they say and i never tell them that it's wrong to come into yoga only for you know i have seen many people that they say you know i mean it's wrong to come into yoga only for physical thing i i don't believe in that of course you come into yoga for physical come into yoga for anything you come into yoga for the girls you know (laughs) you just come to yoga you start yoga and then I mean, all, everything will take place automatically. Yeah. Let the so, yoga and I've seen one more thing that people who think that yoga will not give you a very good body, they have to go to gym. I have seen some amazing yogis and some really amazing bodies, you know, yoga bodies. And they have actually sculpted their body very well with yoga. So, uh, yeah, if you practice yoga, of course, you're going to get like, like very, very, you know, uh, tangible physical benefits also. Yeah. And you, but you do have to eat. <laughs> 
<laughs> Some people, I mean, I know for me when I, because I, I've, I've decided to be vegan. I, that's where I'm taking ahimsa. Um, but at, naturally, I'm a meat eater. If you went back to when I was 14, 15, 16 years old and told me that one day I'd stop eating meat, I would laugh. You know, I'd say that's ridiculous. All I eat is meat. You know, and so for me, there's a, a tendency when I when I cut up when I cut um, dairy and meat out of my diet, there's a tendency for me to just not eat anymore. So I, I, I think that's an important thing to, to, to say is, oh, no, no, go ahead and eat, you know, just if you're, if you're deciding to take on a, a diet, dietary restrictions like that, you know, um, doesn't mean, doesn't mean stop eating. It means uh, you're eating right. different things. <laughs> Correct. You know, I mean, so what happens that, you know, sometimes uh, this, the vegans, I mean, I love uh, uh, vegan people because, you know, okay, so first of all, in India, we have, we have vegetarian people. So we are vegetarians, mm -hmm. not vegans, actually. So this concept of vegan is, is like an alien concept, which is still not that much here in India. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but actually, when you, when you compare a vegan with vegetarian, so what I think that vegans have are much more compassionate not because they are not having uh, milk also, but most of the vegans in West, they were veg non-vegetarian and they had conviction and then they gave up. In India, most of the non-vegetarians or most of the vegetarians, they don't eat meat, not because they have some conviction, but because that's how they have been brought, they have been brought up. Hmm. So from centuries, you know, they have been brought up in uh, veg vegetarian families. So they are not, they don't have the habit of having, uh, eating non-veg food. So, what is the difference now? The difference is that a vegan will never ever be cruel to any animal uh, by principle. But a vegetarian guy who may not eat meat does not necessarily mean that he's still very, uh, he loves animals. He may still hate animals. He may still, you know, uh, hit a say, stone, throw a stone on a dog. Hmm. So that compassion doesn't come. He's a uh, vegetarian, not by choice, but by habit. Interesting. Maybe by the culture. So that's one thing. But having, you know, given, you know, one point to vegan, other point which I have to, you know, take from vegan out is that they sometimes they tend to be very hardcore. Mm. And uh, sometimes it is very good to, you know, to have your convictions. Uh, but when you actually are so fiercely vegan that you don't stand anyone, you know, arguing about, uh, you know, have, uh, giving arguments of eating meat, sometimes they can't even stand that. So, that's something I would tell them that fine, you know, you're vegan, that's fine. But give other opportunity, other people opportunity to be a vegan. As of now, they're not vegans. So let's be, you know, kind to them. Try to make them understand, not, you know, just fight with them and find it's very wrong. You're butcher, you're like Hitler. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. So that's. Yeah. I, what came to mind is that if you ask a vegan, you know, do you think the lion is evil for eating the gazelle? 99% of vegans will say, no, of course not. That's, that's in the lion's nature. So if you can extend that same courtesy to people who have not found it within themselves, either the motivation, the desire, or even the ability to stop mm -hmm. eating meat, have that same compassion and say, oh, that's in their nature. There's a lion. There's a man who eats yeah. meat. I love them both. I'm a vegan. Uh, correct. That's great. Yeah, that's how. And slowly, slowly, people look at you. People look at vegan people, and we get. See, I'm a. Veg I come from a vegetarian family. When I look at vegan, I sometimes feel ashamed of myself. You know, look at these guys, from where to where. You know, and I can't give up my cheese. I can't give up my milk. It is good. Still. I know. I do love <laughs> milk. 
<laughs> but you know, but but you know, I'm always, you know, always, you know, aspiring to be a vegan. So that aspiration is there. So one day, hopefully. Yeah, it yeah. took me. I um I spent a year intentionally taking steps, small steps toward it. And then the very last step was I would take a uh, an omega three pill that's from salmon every day mm-hmm. uh, for my brain. And uh, so I switched to an algae extract, uh, where because that's of course where the salmon get their omega three so is from the algae. Oh. So, so that was my last step. And then, yeah, but I I and then rice milk is pretty good. Um, you know, over here we have a lot of different milk options, but I I've been sticking with the rice milk. There's other uh, – then you get into other considerations like, for example, here in California, we have a, a drought and the almonds that are sold here are California almonds and each almond requires one gallon of water. <laughs> so oh, so when people, people are being you know, healthy uh, eating almonds are actually kind of wasting water. Similarly, Nestle is selling California water in the form of Arrowhead. So anytime anybody anybody buys an, a bottle of Arrowhead water, they're buying water that was sucked out of the ground in California and then sold outside of California. So it's just these these horrible things to be doing in the middle of the drought. But um, so <laughs> trying to stay conscious of all of these things, you know, in addition to uh, to the you know consumption of animal products. But I mean, I, I people have pointed out, you know, human beings have uh, especially o-type human beings have had animal products in their diet for so long and then there's a, a study that says that it's because we ate meat and cooked meat that we even became human in the first place and i always my response to that is that that's that's not that has nothing to do with my decision to be vegan i'm not saying you know i mean to me that's like saying well there's always been slavery and uh and wars so why not just keep having them you know like well, what? Right. No. <laughs> that's how we got here. <laughs> slavery and wars. That's, like, a best, that's a beautiful way to put it, yes. <laughs> it's like, well, we can change, can't we? Surely. But, um, yes. Anyhow, I don't, I've lost my train no. of thought. Not enough minerals from the uh, vegetables in my, in my brain, unfortunately. But <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep a coherent thought going long enough. <laughs> that was, that's interesting. <laughs> Let's see, you know. I mean, I'm sure that, see, vegan thing, it, it's just a matter of time. Eventually, it has to catch up. It will catch up, like, it will become a mainstream thing, I'm sure. I mean, there's no other way around it. Yeah. It will take time, but, you know, I mean, it, it can't keep on happening. You can't have, you know, I mean, animals on the conveyor belts, and it won't happen for long. I mean, not for not for uh, too long. So, let's see. It has to end one day. It and seems like there'll be if, room for a lot more people in the world if we can all... You know, it, it, you know, if hypothetically we were all vegan and we didn't throw away plastic every day and, you know, just a few little things like that, um, it seems like we'd, we'd be much more in, in har- small things. They're not huge Correct. things, yeah. but, but we'd be able to, you know, live perfectly happy lives as human beings with houses and shelter and everything we love to have and not do as much damage to the earth. Right. Correct. Hopefully one day, yes. I'd like to see that. You know, at least a few steps toward that in our lifetime. It'd be nice. Yes, it's already happening. I'm speaking to a vegan, so what else? And that's in America. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we're having this conversation. I think it's. I think it's a very good thing to to just kind of be able to casually have a conversation across the globe like this. That's definitely a step forward. Yes, correct. It's yes. something our ancestors didn't have. Yes, I mean, yeah. Let's make full use of technology. You know. Yeah. 
So I want to thank you uh, for your offer to translate for yogis that don't speak English. Yes, yes. I would love to do that. I definitely will take you up on that. And you might be actually better at finding them than I would. Okay. I will. I'll do that also. Yeah. If but anything mind. in particular you look for? I just want to learn. I mean, I, I, I guess, I guess, you know, I'm not that picky. So if it's someone who's not, you know, a master, but someone who is interested in sharing, um, or a master, okay. you know, whatever, really, um, you know, anyone who who seems like they would have something good to share. And I'm sure, I mean, I, I can tell by talking to you that you know the difference between someone who's selling something or someone who's trying to get control over someone's mind or that kind of thing versus someone who genuinely wants to help you to become your best self. And, uh, right. and so, of course, I would want to talk to the latter and not so much with the former. <laughs> I, uh, we, we have some of those over here in the West, too. I, um, I have another podcast called The Esoterra Nerd, where um, mm-hmm. we interview people who are magicians and, and uh, you know, ceremonial magicians and, and people who do tarot and things like that. And so in those communities, there's a lot of uh, con men and con artists and, and uh, people who are you know, out to sell something. And I mean, I, I don't, I say that uh, not to say that there's anything wrong with being out to sell something, but someone who, when, when you can tell that their, their number one motivation is for you to give them money, <laughs> you know, it's like you were saying, you became a yoga instructor because you were teaching yoga for free and everybody wanted it. It wasn't, okay, I'm going to sell yoga. What's the best way that I can get the most amount of money out of people? You know, um, some people are motivated by, uh, just wanting to be the one who's right and everybody else is wrong. Some people want to control others, you know, and, yes. and, uh, and that, yeah, that and, happens a lot. Yes, yeah, so we just kind of avoid that, you know, as best we can. And I'm, I, I'm sure that, it, I'm sure that I'll end up talking to one or two people who, who don't have the purest motivations at some point in the future, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, but uh, that's, that's my only qualifier is, um, it could be someone who's a beginner, someone who's been at it for years, um, as long as they have a good heart. Okay, so heart, though, I can't guarantee, but <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'll, but yes, I got your point. Let's see, you know, if I can uh, find some more people and if they have something very interesting to offer, something, some nice insight to their own uh, life. Yeah, or, or even if they just want to, if they like the idea of sharing what they have um, with the world and, you know, and even if it's someone who, who's a little bit motivated by like, maybe they have a studio and they want to mention where it is and, you know, maybe get a few more clients. That's fine. Um, you know, that, that way yeah. they're getting something yeah. out of it and, and we're all getting something out of it and everybody's getting something. It's win-win. Nobody's losing. Right. And maybe one day what we can do, we can have a, a session where, you know, I can have like a, six, seven or eight students who have something to offer. Yeah. And maybe it can be a group kind of interview and uh, you can maybe ask something and maybe, you know, some, some, you know, you'll have some different, different insights from different people. You know, we can do that also. Yeah. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Yeah. Looking yeah, forward to it. It seems like there's, there's a lot of potential here. All right. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast today. My pleasure, Edward. And I uh, love speaking to you. Yeah. And we will definitely talk soon. Have a good night. And have a great day, Edward. Thank you so much. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you very much, Shikhar, for being on the To Be a Yogi podcast. Special thanks to Brian Dahl for this music. 
from the album Golden Dawn LVX. And if you are in or near Delhi and you'd like to take a class from him, just go to yogamyway.in for more information. A special shout out to my regulars in Burbank who requested with the front desk that I be put back on the schedule. I have been put back on the schedule. I am officially teaching the 9 a.m. class every Tuesday through the end of March. And between you and I, I think I'll probably be on the spring schedule as well. But we'll just have to wait and see. Thanks again, and I'll see you on Tuesday. As usual, I'm teaching the 1 p.m. Wednesday and 5 p.m. Friday classes at the Sunset Boulevard French Fitness. I'll see you there if you're in the neighborhood. If you contact me, I might be able to get you in as a guest, but I can only do it once per person. Also, I heartily recommend checking out Bava's Fest. It's a four-day yoga festival happening up in Kernville. There's a river, a real river. It's far enough north in California that there's still water in it. And uh, there's going to be yoga, 30-some-odd teachers. It'll be great. I've interviewed a lot of teachers that are going to be there lately if you check in with the earlier episodes. Uh, For more information on that, go to bhavasfest.com. And when you sign up for that, don't forget my promo code, 2BYOGI. That'll knock $50 off the $250 admission. That's the number two and the letters B-Y-O-G-I. Thank you all for tuning in. That which is sacred in me recognizes and honors that which is sacred in you. Namaste.